Chapter 8 Jim Simons's pulse quickened as he approached 6th Avenue. It was a sultry summer afternoon, but Simons wore a jacket and tie, hoping to impress. He had his work cut out for him. By 1991, David Shaw and a few other upstarts were using computer models to trade stocks. Those few members of the Wall Street establishment aware of the approach mostly scoffed at it, however. Relying on inscrutable algorithms, as Simons was doing, seemed ludicrous, even dangerous. Some called it black box investing, hard to explain and likely masking serious risk. Huge sums of money were being made the old-fashioned way, blending thoughtful research with honed instincts. Who needed Simons and his fancy computers? Awaiting Simons in a tall midtown Manhattan office tower was Donald Sussman, a 45-year-old Miami native who was something of a heretic on Wall Street. More than two decades earlier, as an undergraduate at Columbia University, Sussman took a leave of absence to work in a small brokerage firm. There, he stumbled upon an obscure strategy to trade convertible bonds, a particularly naughty investment. Sussman convinced his bosses to shell out $2,000 for an early-generation electronic calculator so he could quickly determine which bond was most attractive. Calculator in hand, Sussman made the firm millions of dollars in profits, a windfall that opened his eyes to how technology could render an advantage. Now the six-foot-three, broad-shouldered, mustachioed Sussman ran a fund called Paloma Partners that was backing Shaw's rapidly expanding hedge fund firm, D.E. Shaw. Sussman suspected mathematicians and scientists might one day rival, or even best, the largest trading firms, no matter the conventional wisdom in the business. Word was out that he was open to investing in additional computer-focused traders, giving Simons hope he might gain Sussman's support. Simons had discarded a thriving academic career to do something special in the investing world. But, after a full decade in the business, he was managing barely more than $45 million, a mere quarter the assets of Shaw's firm. The meeting had import. Backing from Sussman could help Renaissance hire employees, upgrade technology, and become a force on Wall Street. Sussman had been one of Simons's earliest investors, but he suffered losses and withdrew his money, an experience that suggested Sussman might be skeptical of his visitor. Simons's trading algorithms had recently been revamped, however, and he was bursting with confidence. He strode into Sussman's building, a block from Carnegie Hall, rode an elevator to the 31st floor, and stepped into an expansive conference room with panoramic views of Central Park and a large whiteboard for visiting quants to scribble their equations. Eyeing Simons across a long, narrow wooden table, Sussman couldn't help smiling. His guest was bearded, balding, and graying, bearing little resemblance to most of the investors who made regular pilgrimages to his office asking for money. Simons's tie was slightly askew, and his jacket tweed, a rarity on Wall Street. He came alone, without the usual entourage of handlers and advisors. Simons was just the kind of brainy investor Sussman enjoyed helping. He looked like an academic, Sussman recalls. Simons began his pitch, relaying how his medallion hedge fund had refined its approach. Assured and plain-spoken, Simon spent more than an hour outlining his firm's performance, risks, and volatility, and he broadly described his new short-term model. Now I really have it, Simon's enthused. We've had a breakthrough. 
He asked Sussman for a $10 million investment in his hedge fund, expressing certainty he could generate big gains and grow Renaissance into a major investment firm. I've had a revelation, Simon said. I can do it in size. Sussman listened patiently. He was impressed. There was no way he was giving Simons any money, though. Privately, Sussman worried about potential conflicts of interest, since he was the sole source of capital for Shaw's hedge fund. He was even helping Shaw's firm hire academics and traders to extend its lead over Simon's and other fledgling quantitative traders. If Sussman had cash to spare, he figured, he probably should put it in D.E. Shaw. Besides, Shaw was scoring annual gains of 40%. Renaissance didn't seem to have a shot at matching those gains. Why would I give money to a theoretical competitor? Sussman asked Simons. I'm sorry, but I already have David. They stood up, shook hands, and promised to stay in touch. As Simons turned to leave, Sussman noticed a fleeting look of disappointment on his face. Simons didn't have much more luck with other potential backers. Investors wouldn't say it to his face, but most deemed it absurd to rely on trading models generated by computers. Just as preposterous were Simons's fees, especially his requirement that investors hand over 5% of the money he managed for them each year, well above the 2% levied by most hedge funds. I pay the fees too, Simons told one potential investor, noting that he was also an investor in Medallion. Why shouldn't you? Simons didn't get very far with that logic. The fees he paid went right back to his own firm, rendering his argument unconvincing. Simons was especially hamstrung by the fact that his fund had fewer than two years of impressive returns. When a Wall Street veteran named Anita Rival met with Simons in his Manhattan office to discuss an investment from the firm she represented, she became the latest to snub him. He wouldn't explain how the computer models worked, she recalls. You couldn't understand what he was doing. Within Renaissance, word circulated that Commodities Corporation, a firm credited with launching dominant hedge funds run by commodity-focused traders, including Paul Tudor Jones, Louis Bacon, and Bruce Kovner, also passed on backing Simons's fund. The view from the industry was, it's a bunch of mathematicians using computers. What do they know about the business? says a friend of Simon's. They had no track record. The risk was they were going to put themselves out of business. Simon still had his trading system, now managing a bit more than $70 million after a gain of 39% in 1991. If Simon's could figure out a way to extend his winning streak or even improve Medallion's returns, he was sure investors would eventually come around. Burlakamp, Axe, and Baum were long gone, though. Strauss was in charge of the firm's trading, data collection, and more, but he wasn't a researcher capable of uncovering hidden trading signals. With competition growing, Medallion would have to discover new ways to profit. Seeking help, Simons turned to Henry Laufer, a mathematician who already had demonstrated a flair for creative solutions. Laufer never claimed any of the prestigious mathematics awards given to Simons and Axe nor did he have a popular algorithm named after him, like Lenny Baum or Elwin Burlikamp. Nonetheless, Laufer had scaled his own heights of accomplishment and recognition, and he would prove Simons's best partner yet. Laufer had finished his undergraduate work at the City College of New York and graduate school at Princeton University in two years each, earning a claim for progress he'd made on a stubborn problem 
in a field of mathematics dealing with functions of complex variables and for discovering new examples of embeddings, or structures within other math structures. Joining Stony Brook's math department in 1971, Laufer focused on complex variables and algebraic geometry, veering away from classical areas of complex analysis to develop insights into more contemporary problems. Laufer came alive in the classroom and was popular with students, but he was more timid in his personal life. High school friends remember a bookish introvert who carried a slide rule. Early on at Stony Brook, Laufer told colleagues he wanted to get married and was eager to put himself in the best position to find the right woman. Once, on a ski trip with fellow mathematician Leonard Charlap, Laufer suggested they go down to the hotel's bar to meet some girls. Charlap looked at his friend and just laughed. Henry, you're not that kind of guy, Charlap said, knowing Laufer would be too shy to hit on women in a hotel bar. He was a nice Jewish boy, Charlap recalls. Laufer eventually met and married Marcia's Latin, a speech-language pathology professor at Stony Brook who shared Laufer's liberal politics. Marcia had a more upbeat personality, often using the word swell to describe her mood, no matter the challenge. After suffering a series of miscarriages, Marcia amazed friends with her buoyancy, eventually giving birth to healthy children. Later, she earned a PhD in speech-language pathology. Marcia's outlook on life seemed to influence Laufer. Among colleagues, he was known as a willing collaborator. They noticed Laufer had a special interest in investing, and they were disappointed but not shocked when he rejoined Simons as a full-time employee in 1992. Academics who shift to trading often turn nervous and edgy, worried about each move in the market, concerns that hounded Baum when he joined Simons. Laufer, then 46, had a different reaction. His improved pay relieved stress he had felt about the cost of his daughter's college education, friends say, and Laufer seemed to relish the intellectual challenge of crafting profitable trading formulas. For Simons, Laufer's geniality was a welcome relief after years of dealing with the complicated personalities of Baum, Axe, and Burlicamp. Simons became Renaissance's big-picture guy, wooing investors, attracting talent, planning for emergencies, and mapping a strategy for how his team, with Laufer leading research in a new Stony Brook office and Strauss running trading in Berkeley, might build on the recent strong returns. Laufer made an early decision that would prove extraordinarily valuable. Medallion would employ a single trading model rather than maintain various models for different investments and market conditions, a style most quantitative firms would embrace. A collection of trading models was simpler and easier to pull off, Laufer acknowledged, but, he argued, a single model could draw on Strauss's vast trove of pricing data, detecting correlations, opportunities, and other signals across various asset classes. Narrow individual models, by contrast, can suffer from too little data. Just as important, Laufer understood that a single stable model based on some core assumptions about how prices and markets behave would make it easier to add new investments later on. They could even toss investments with relatively little trading data into the mix if they were deemed similar to other investments Medallion traded with lots of data. Yes, Laufer acknowledged, it's a challenge to combine various investments, say a currency futures contract and a U.S. commodity contract. But, he argued, 
Once they figured out ways to smooth out those wrinkles, the single model would lead to better trading results. Laufer spent long hours at his desk refining the model. At lunchtime, the team usually piled into Laufer's aging Lincoln town car and headed to a local joint where the deliberations continued. It didn't take long to come up with a new way to look at the market. Strauss and others had compiled reams of files tracking decades of prices of dozens of commodities, bonds, and currencies. To make it all easier to digest, they had broken the trading week into ten segments, five overnight sessions when stocks traded in overseas markets, and five day sessions. In effect, they sliced the day in half, enabling the team to search for repeating patterns and sequences in the various segments. Then, they entered trades in the morning, at noon, and at the end of the day. Simons wondered if there might be a better way to parse their data trove. Perhaps breaking the day up into finer segments might enable the team to dissect intraday pricing information and unearth new, undetected patterns. Laufer began splitting the day in half, then into quarters, eventually deciding five-minute bars were the ideal way to carve things up. Crucially, Strauss now had access to improved computer processing power, making it easier for Laufer to compare small slices of historic data. Did the 188th five-minute bar in the cocoa futures market regularly fall on days investors got nervous, while bar 199 usually rebounded? Perhaps bar 50 in the gold market saw strong buying on days investors worried about inflation, but bar 63 often showed weakness. Laufer's five-minute bars gave the team the ability to identify new trends, oddities, and other phenomena, or, in their parlance, non-random trading effects. Strauss and others conducted tests to ensure they hadn't mined so deeply into their data that they had arrived at bogus trading strategies, but many of the new signals seemed to hold up. It was as if the medallion team had donned glasses for the first time, seeing the market anew. One early discovery, certain trading bands from Friday morning's action had the uncanny ability to predict bands later that same afternoon, nearer to the close of trading. Laufer's work also showed that if markets moved higher late in the day, it often paid to buy futures contracts just before the close of trading and dumped them at the market's opening the next day. The team uncovered predictive effects related to volatility, as well as a series of combination effects such as the propensity of pairs of investments, such as gold and silver, or heating oil and crude oil, to move in the same direction at certain times in the trading day compared with others. It wasn't immediately obvious why some of the new trading signals worked, but as long as they had p-values, or probability values, under 0.01, meaning they appeared statistically significant, with a low probability of being statistical mirages, they were added to the system. Wielding an array of profitable investing ideas wasn't nearly enough, Simon soon realized. How do we pull the trigger, he asked Laufer and the rest of the team. Simons was challenging them to solve yet another vexing problem. Given the range of possible trades they had developed and the limited amount of money that Medallion managed, how much should they bet on each trade? And which moves should they pursue and prioritize? Laufer began developing a computer program to identify optimal trades throughout the day, something Simons began calling his betting algorithm. Laufer decided it would be dynamic, adapting on its own along the way 
and relying on real-time analysis to adjust the fund's mix of holdings given the probabilities of future market moves, an early form of machine learning. Driving to Stony Brook with a friend and medallion investor, Simons could hardly contain his excitement. Our system is a living thing. It's always modifying, he said. We really should be able to grow it. With only a dozen or so employees, Simons had to build a full staff if he wanted to catch up to D.E. Shaw and take on the industry's trading powers. One day, a Stony Brook Ph.D. student named Kresimir Penovich drove over for a job interview. As he waited to speak with Laufer, Simons, wearing torn pants and penny loafers, a cigarette dangling between two fingers, wandered over to assess his new recruit. You're at Stony Brook? He asked Penovich, who nodded. What have you done? Unsure who the guy with all the questions was, Penovich, who stood six foot six, began describing his undergraduate work in applied mathematics. Simons was unimpressed. That's trivial stuff, he sniffed. It was the most devastating put-down a mathematician could deliver. Undeterred, Penovich told Simons about another paper he'd written focused on an unsolved algebraic problem. That problem is not trivial, Penovich insisted. That's still trivial, Simon said with a wave of his hand, cigarette fumes wafting past Penovich's face. As the young recruit burned, Simon started grinning, as if he had been playing a practical joke on Penovich. I like you, though, Simon said. A bit later, Penovich was hired. Around the same time, a researcher named Nick Patterson was added to the staff, though he didn't exactly celebrate his job offer. Patterson couldn't shake his suspicion that Simons was running some kind of scam. It wasn't just that, in 1992, Medallion was enjoying a third straight year of annual returns topping 33%, as Laufer's short-term tactics paid off. Nor was it the enormous fees the fund charged clients, or the $100 million it supposedly managed. It was the way Simons was racking up the alleged profits relying on a computer model that he and his employees themselves didn't fully understand. Even the office itself didn't seem entirely legitimate to Patterson. Simons had moved Renaissance's research operation into the top floor of a 19th-century home on tree-lined North Country Road in a residential area of Stony Brook. There were nine people crammed into the house, all working on various businesses backed by Simons, including some venture capital investments, and a couple of guys downstairs trading stocks. No one knew much about what anyone else was doing, and Simons didn't even come in every day. The place was so tight, Patterson didn't have a proper place to sit. Eventually, he pushed a chair and desk into an empty corner of Simons' own office. Simons spent half the week in a New York City office and told Patterson he didn't mind sharing. Patterson was well aware of Simons' accomplishments in mathematics and code-breaking, but they did little to allay his suspicions. Mathematicians can be crooks too, Patterson says. It's quite easy to launder money in hedge funds. For a full month, Patterson surreptitiously jotted down the closing prices that Medallion used for various investments in its portfolio, carefully checking them against pages of the Wall Street Journal, line by line, to see if they matched. Patterson had more reason for paranoia than even he realized. Around the same time, Another investor from Long Island, Bernard Madoff, was crafting history's largest Ponzi scheme. Only after Simons's numbers checked out did a relieved Patterson turn his full attention 
to using his mathematical skills to help the effort. It had taken Patterson years to realize that he actually enjoyed math. Early in his life, math was just a tool for Patterson, one he used for protection. Patterson suffered from facial dysplasia, a rare congenital disorder that distorted the left side of his face and rendered his left eye blind. An only child who grew up in the Bayswater section of central London, Patterson was sent to Catholic boarding school and bullied unmercifully. Unable to speak with his parents more than once a week and determined to maintain a stiff British upper lip, Patterson turned his prowess in the classroom into an advantage. I evolved into the school brain, a British stock character, Patterson recalls. I was seen as odd but useful, so they left me alone. Patterson was mostly attracted to mathematics because he was uber competitive, and it was gratifying to discover a field he could dominate. Only at the age of 16 did Patterson notice he actually enjoyed the subject. A few years later, after graduating from the University of Cambridge, Patterson took a job that required him to write commercial code. He proved a natural, gaining an advantage over fellow mathematicians, few of whom knew how to program computers. A strong chess player, Patterson spent much of his free time at a London coffee shop that rented chess boards and hosted intense matches between customers. Patterson regularly trounced players many years his senior. After a while, he deduced the shop was no more than a front. There was a secret staircase leading to an illegal high-stakes poker game run by a local thug. Patterson gained entrance to the game, and it quickly became clear he was a stud at poker as well pocketing fistfuls of cash. The tough guy took notice of Patterson's abilities, making him an offer he figured Patterson couldn't refuse. If you hustle chess downstairs for me, I'll share your winnings and handle all your losses. There was no risk to Patterson, but he rejected the offer nonetheless. The brute told him he was making a big mistake. Are you nuts? You can't make any money in mathematics, he sneered. The experience taught Patterson to distrust most money-making operations, even those that appeared legitimate, one reason why he was so skeptical of Simon's years later. After graduate school, Patterson thrived as a cryptologist for the British government, building statistical models to unscramble intercepted messages and encrypt secret messages in a unit made famous during World War II when Alan Turing famously broke Germany's encryption codes. Patterson harnessed the simple yet profound Bayes' theorem of probability, which argues that, by updating one's initial beliefs with new, objective information, one can arrive at improved understandings. Patterson solved a long-standing problem in the field, deciphering a pattern in the data others had missed, becoming so valuable to the government that some top-secret documents shared with allies were labeled for U.S. eyes only and for Nick Patterson. It was James Bond stuff, he says. Several years later, when a new pay scale was instituted that elevated the group's administrators above the cryptologists, Patterson became livid. It was the insult, not the money, says Patterson, who told his wife he'd rather drive a bus than remain in the group. I had to get out of there. Patterson moved to the Institute for Defense Analyses, where he met Simons and Baum, but he turned nervous as he approached his 50th birthday. My father had a hard time in his late fifties, and that worried me, recalls Patterson, who had two children at the time who were preparing to go to college. I didn't have enough money, 
and I didn't want to go down that road. When a senior colleague received permission to travel to Russia for an amateur radio conference, Patterson realized the Cold War was ending, and he had to act fast. I'm going to lose my job. Fortuitously, Simon soon called, out of the blue, sounding urgent. We need to talk, Simon said. Will you work for me? A move to Renaissance made sense to Patterson. Simons's group was analyzing large amounts of messy, complicated pricing data to predict future prices. Patterson thought his natural skepticism could prove valuable discerning true signals from random market fluctuations. He also knew his programming skills would come in handy. And, unlike many of Renaissance's dozen or so employees, Patterson actually read the business pages, at least occasionally, and knew a bit about finance. I thought I was pretty cutting edge because I owned an index fund, he says. Patterson saw the world becoming extremely mathematical, and new computer firepower was expanding exponentially. He sensed Simons had an opportunity to revolutionize investing by applying high-level math and statistics. Fifty years earlier, we couldn't have done anything, but this was the perfect time, he says. After lugging a computer into the corner of Simons's office and concluding that Renaissance likely wasn't a fraud, Patterson began helping Laufer with a stubborn problem. Profitable trade ideas are only half the game. The act of buying and selling investments can itself affect prices to such a degree that gains can be whittled away. It's meaningless to know that copper prices will rise from $3 a contract to $3.10, for example, if your buying pushes the price up to $3.05 before you even have a chance to complete your transaction. Perhaps as dealers hike the price, or as rivals do their own buying, slashing potential profits by half. From the earliest days of the fund, Simons's team had been wary of these transaction costs, which they called slippage. They regularly compared their trades against a model that tracked how much the firm would have profited or lost were it not for those bothersome trading costs. The group coined a name for the difference between the prices they were getting and the theoretical trades their model made without the pesky costs. They called it the devil. For a while, the actual size of the devil was something of a guess. But as Strauss collected more data and his computers became more powerful, Laufer and Patterson began writing a computer program to track how far their trades strayed from the ideal state, in which trading costs barely weighed on the fund's performance. By the time Patterson got to Renaissance, the firm could run a simulator that subtracted these trading costs from the prices they had received, instantly isolating how much they were missing out. To narrow the gap, Laufer and Patterson began developing sophisticated approaches to direct trades to various futures exchanges to reduce the market impact of each trade. Now Medallion could better determine which investments to pursue, a huge advantage as it began trading new markets and investments. They added German, British, and Italian bonds, then interest rate contracts in London, and later, futures on Nikkei stock average, Japanese government bonds, and more. The fund began trading more frequently. Having first sent orders to a team of traders five times a day, it eventually increased to 16 times a day, reducing the impact on prices by focusing on the periods when there was the most volume. Medallion's traders still had to pick up the phone to transact, but the fund was on its way toward faster trading. 
Until then, Simons and his colleagues hadn't spent too much time wondering why their growing collection of algorithms predicted prices so presciently. They were scientists and mathematicians, not analysts or economists. If certain signals produced results that were statistically significant, that was enough to include them in the trading model. I don't know why planets orbit the sun, Simons told a colleague, suggesting one needn't spend too much time figuring out why the market's patterns existed. That doesn't mean I can't predict them. Still, the returns were piling up so fast, it was getting a bit absurd. Medallions soared over 25% just in June 1994, on its way to a 71% surge that year, results that even Simons described as simply remarkable. Even more impressive, the gains came in a year the Federal Reserve surprised investors by hiking interest rates repeatedly, leading to deep losses for many investors. The Renaissance team was curious by nature, as were many of its investors. They couldn't help wonder what the heck was going on. If Medallion was emerging as a big winner in most of its trades, who was on the other side suffering steady losses? Over time, Simons came to the conclusion that the losers probably weren't those who trade infrequently, such as buy-and-hold individual investors, or even the treasurer of a multinational corporation, who adjusts her portfolio of foreign currencies every once in a while to suit her company's needs, as Simons told his investors. Instead, it seemed Renaissance was exploiting the foibles and faults of fellow speculators, both big and small. The manager of a global hedge fund who is guessing on a frequent basis the direction of the French bond market may be a more exploitable participant, Simon said. Laufer had a slightly different explanation for their heady returns. When Patterson came to him, curious about the source of the money they were raking in, Laufer pointed to a different set of traders infamous for both their excessive trading and overconfidence when it came to predicting the direction of the market. It's a lot of dentists, Laufer said. Laufer's explanation sounds glib, but his perspective, as well as Simons's viewpoint, can be seen as profound, even radical. At the time, most academics were convinced markets were inherently efficient, suggesting that there were no predictable ways to beat the market's return, and that the financial decision-making of individuals was largely rational. Simons and his colleagues sensed the professors were wrong. They believed investors are prone to cognitive biases, the kinds that lead to panics, bubbles, booms, and busts. Simons didn't realize it, but a new strain of economics was emerging that would validate his instincts. In the 1970s, Israeli psychologists Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman had explored how individuals make decisions, demonstrating how prone most are to act irrationally. Later, economist Richard Thaler used psychological insights to explain anomalies in investor behavior, spurring the growth of the field of behavioral economics, which explored the cognitive biases of individuals and investors. Among those identified, loss aversion, or how investors generally feel the pain from losses twice as much as the pleasure from gains, anchoring, the way judgment is skewed by an initial piece of information or experience, and the endowment effect, how investors assign excessive value to what they already own in their portfolios. Kahneman and Thaler would win Nobel Prizes for their work. A consensus would emerge that investors act more irrationally than assumed, 
repeatedly making similar mistakes. Investors overreact to stress and make emotional decisions. Indeed, it's likely no coincidence that Medallion found itself making its largest profits during times of extreme turbulence in financial markets, a phenomenon that would continue for decades to come. Like most investors, Simons, too, became nervous when his fund went through rocky times. In a few rare circumstances, he reacted by pairing the firm's overall positions. On the whole, though, Simons maintained faith in his trading model, recalling how difficult it had been for him to invest using his instincts. He made a commitment to refrain from overriding the model, hoping to ensure that neither Medallion's returns nor the emotions of his employees at Renaissance influence the fund's moves. Our P&L isn't an input, Patterson says, using trading lingo for profits and losses. We're mediocre traders, but our system never has rows with its girlfriends. That's the kind of thing that causes patterns in markets. Simons hadn't embraced a statistics-based approach because of the work of any economists or psychologists, nor had he set out to program algorithms to avoid or take advantage of investors' biases. Over time, though, Simons and his team came to believe that these errors and overreactions were at least partially responsible for their profits, and that their developing system seemed uniquely capable of taking advantage of the common mistakes of fellow traders. What you're really modeling is human behavior, explains Penovich, the researcher. Humans are most predictable in times of high stress. They act instinctively and panic. Our entire premise was that human actors will react the way humans did in the past. We learned to take advantage. Investors finally began taking note of Medallion's gains. A year earlier, in 1993, GAM Holding, a London-based investment firm managing money for wealthy clients that was one of the first institutions to invest in hedge funds, had given Renaissance about $25 million. By then, Simons and his team had turned wary of sharing much of anything about how their funds operated, lest rivals catch on. That put GAM executives, accustomed to fully understanding details of how funds operated, in a difficult position. They'd confirmed that Renaissance had proper audits and that their investors' money was secure, but GAM couldn't fully understand how Medallion was making so much money. The GAM brass were thrilled with the results of Simons's fund, but, like other clients, perpetually anxious about their investment. I always lived scared, worried something would go wrong, says David McCarthy, who was in charge of monitoring GAM's investment in Medallion. Soon, Simons's challenges would become apparent. Simons did an about-face. By the end of 1993, Medallion managed $280 million, and Simons worried profits might suffer if the fund got too big and its trades started pushing prices higher when it bought or lower when it sold. Simons decided not to let any more clients into the fund. Simons's team turned more secretive, telling clients to dial a Manhattan phone number for a recording of recent results and to speak with Renaissance's lawyers if they needed detailed updates. The additional steps were to keep rivals from learning about the fund's activities. Our very good results have made us well-known, and this may be our most serious challenge, Simons wrote in a letter to clients. Visibility invites competition, and with all due respect to the principles of free enterprise, the less the better. 
Simons pressured his investors not to share any details of the operation. Our only defense is to keep a low profile, he told them. The secretive approach sometimes hurt the firm. In the winter of 1995, a scientist at Brookhaven National Laboratory's relativistic heavy ion collider named Michael Botlow received a call from a Renaissance executive asking if he'd be interested in a job. Fighting a snowstorm, Botlow drove his dented Mazda hatchback to Renaissance's new offices, located in a high-tech incubator close to a hospital and a dive bar near Stony Brook's campus. Botlow entered the office, brushed off the snow, and was immediately underwhelmed by the small, tacky, beige and teal offices. When Botlow sat down to speak with Patterson and other staff members, they wouldn't share even bare details of their trading approach, focusing instead on the inclement weather, frustrating Botlow. Enough of the chit-chat, he thought. Botlow was told Renaissance used a decade-old computer programming language called Perl, rather than languages like C++ that big Wall Street trading firms relied upon, making him even more skeptical. In reality, Renaissance employed Perl for bookkeeping and other operations, not its trading, but no one wanted to share that information with a visitor. It looked like four guys in a garage. They didn't seem that skilled at computer science, and a lot of what they were doing seemed by the seat of their pants, a few guys dabbling at computing, Botlow says. It wasn't very appealing. Days later, Botlow wrote Patterson a note. I've chosen to learn the business properly by joining Morgan Stanley. Ouch. In 1995, Simons received a call from a representative of Payne Weber, a major brokerage firm, expressing interest in an acquisition of Renaissance. Finally, after years of hard work and outsized gains, Wall Street's big boys had taken notice of Simons's pioneering methods. A huge payday surely was in the offing. Simons appointed Patterson to meet with a few Payne Weber executives, but it didn't take him long to realize the brokerage firm wasn't convinced of Simons's revolutionary strategies or interested in his acclaimed staffers. The Payne Weber executives were simply after the hedge fund's client list astonished by the enormous fees they were paying to invest with Simons. After getting their hands on Renaissance's customers, Payne Weber would likely gut the firm and try to sell its own products to Renaissance's well-heeled clientele. The talks went nowhere, disappointing some at Renaissance. The mainstream still didn't trust computer trading. It just felt wrong and risky. They assumed the algorithms were basically nonsense, Patterson says. Medallion was still on a winning streak. It was scoring big profits trading futures contracts and managed $600 million. But Simons was convinced the hedge fund was in a serious bind. Laufer's models, which measured the fund's impact on the market with surprising precision, concluded that Medallion's returns would wane if it managed much more money. Some commodity markets, such as grains, were just too small to handle additional buying and selling by the fund, without pushing prices around. There were also limitations to how much more Medallion could do in bigger bond and currency markets. Word had spread that Medallion had a knack for profitable bets, and shady traders were taking advantage. On a visit to Chicago, a staffer caught someone standing above the Eurodollar futures pits watching Medallion's trades. 
the spy would send hand signals whenever Medallion bought or sold, enabling a Confederate to get in just before Simons's fund took any actions, reducing Medallion's profits. Others seemed to have index cards listing the times of day Medallion usually transacted. Some on the floor had even coined a nickname for Simons's team, the Shakes, a reflection of their prominence in some commodity markets. Renaissance adjusted its activity to make it more secretive and unpredictable, but it was one more indication the firm was outgrowing various financial markets. Simons worried his signals were getting weaker as rivals adopted similar strategies. The system is always leaking, Simons acknowledged in his first interview with a reporter. We keep having to keep it ahead of the game. Some at the firm didn't see the big deal. Okay, the capital constraints meant Medallion never could become the world's largest or greatest hedge fund. So what? If they kept the fund around its current size, they'd all become fabulously wealthy and successful anyway. Why don't we keep it at $600 million? Strauss asked Simons. That way, Medallion could rack up $200 million or so in annual profits, more than enough to make its employees happy. No, Simons responded. We can do better. Simons insisted on finding a way to grow the fund, frustrating some staffers. Emperors won empires, one griped to a colleague. Robert Frey, the former Morgan Stanley quant who was working at Kepler, the separate stock trading venture backed by Simons, had a kinder interpretation of Simons's stubborn push to grow medallion. Simons was determined to accomplish something special, says Frey, maybe even pioneer a new approach to trading. What Jim wants to do is matter, Frey says. He wanted a life that meant something. If he was going to do a fund, he wanted to be the best. Frey has an additional theory about why Simons was so intent on expanding the fund. Jim saw his chance to be a billionaire, Frey says. Simons had long been driven by two ever-present motivations, proving he could solve big problems and making lots and lots of money. Friends never fully understood his need to accumulate more wealth, but it was ceaseless and ever-present. There was only one way Simons could grow Medallion without crippling its returns, expand into stock investing. Because equity markets are deep and easy to trade, even huge size wouldn't impede profits. The catch was that making money in equity markets had long confounded Simons and his team. Frey was still working on his trading strategies at Kepler, but the results were lackluster, adding to Simons's pressures. Hoping to keep the fund's performance afloat and improve the operation's efficiency, Simons moved to consolidate all his operations on Long Island, uprooting 10 longtime employees in Northern California, including Sandor Strauss, who had a son in high school and protested the move. Strauss said he was unwilling to leave for Long Island and was unhappy Simons was forcing his California-based colleagues to transplant their lives. Strauss ran the trading operation, was the last remaining member of the original firm, and was a key reason for its success. Strauss owned a piece of Renaissance, and he demanded a vote of fellow shareholders on the cross-country relocation. Strauss lost, leading to more frustration. In 1996, Strauss sold his Renaissance shares and quit a fresh blow for Simons. Later, Simons would force Strauss and other non-employees to pull their money out of Medallion. Strauss could have insisted on special treatment, 
that might have allowed him to invest in the fund indefinitely, but he figured he'd just invest with funds that enjoyed similar prospects. I thought we were one of many, Strauss says. If I thought there was some secret sauce, I would have made sure I could stay invested in Medallion. As Simons and his team struggled to find a new direction and deal with Strauss's departure, he didn't get much sympathy from his old friends in mathematics. They still didn't get why he was devoting so much time and energy to financial markets. All they saw was a generational talent wasting his time on frivolity. One weekend afternoon after Simons left Stony Brook, Dennis Sullivan, a well-known topologist at Stony Brook, visited Simons at home, watching as he organized a birthday party for his son, Nathaniel, Simons' third child with Barbara. As Simons handed out water guns and participated in the ensuing hijinks, Sullivan rolled his eyes. It annoyed me, Sullivan says. Math is sacred, and Jim was a serious mathematician who could solve the hardest problems. I was disappointed in his choices. Other times, Simons was seen joking around with Nicholas, his first child with Marilyn, who was outgoing like his father and shared his sometimes mischievous sense of humor. Sullivan's perspective slowly changed as he grew closer with Simons, spending time at his home and witnessing Simons's devotion to his aging parents, who frequently visited from Boston. Sullivan gained an appreciation for the attention Simons gave to his children, especially Paul, who continued to battle his birth disorder. At 17, Paul had suffered an epileptic seizure, and he subsequently began taking medication that eliminated future attacks. Jim and Barbara saw signs of emerging self-confidence in their son. All his life, Paul worked to strengthen his body, doing a series of pull-ups and push-ups almost every day, while also becoming an accomplished skier and endurance bicycle rider. A free spirit, Paul demonstrated little interest in mathematics or trading. As an adult, he hiked, skied, played with his dog, Avalon, and developed a close relationship with a local young woman. Paul especially enjoyed cycling through tranquil, dormant land near Mill Pond in Stony Brook, spending hours at a time on his favorite bike route. In September 1996, after turning 34 years old, Paul donned a jersey and shorts, hopped on his world-class bicycle, and set off on a fast ride through Old Field Road in Setauket, near his boyhood home. Out of nowhere, an elderly woman backed her car out of the driveway, unaware the young man was riding past. She hit Paul, crushing and killing him instantly. A random and tragic accident. Several days later, the woman, traumatized by the experience, had a heart attack and died. Jim and Barbara were devastated. For weeks afterward, Simons was a shell of himself. Simons leaned on his family for support, withdrawing from work and other activities. Colleagues didn't know how Simons would cope with his pain or how long it would last. You never get over it, Barbara says. You just learn to deal with it. When Simons eventually returned to work, his friends sensed he needed a distraction. Simons refocused on his team's disappointing efforts to master stock trading, his last chance to build his firm into a power. For a while, it seemed Simons was wasting his time.